need to be careful not to idealize the past. And that's actually a biblical command that the writers of the book of Ecclesiastes explicitly says, say not, why were the former days better than these? He warns that that doesn't come from a place of wisdom. The warning there is not to idealize the past, and I think that's especially true when it comes to the church. The church in this world has always been far from perfect. There was and there is, there will not be, a golden age of the church. And the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly acknowledges this reality. The church is not perfect in this world, and she will at times be less visible and less pure. And even churches who seek purity of doctrine and worship, we read, they are still subject to a mixture of truth and error. And the confession goes on to to underline the sad reality that at times the church declines and degenerates so much that it ceases to be the church of Jesus Christ and it becomes a synagogue of Satan. I think because of this reality, we need to be very careful, especially in our day, not to ignore the signs of spiritual decline in the church. Any true discerning believer, as they look at the contours of the church in our country, I think should be alarmed at the decline and the weakness of the church. Even compared to a generation ago, the the church is significantly weaker. She is less visible and less pure. Today, the church's message seems drowned out by the noise of the world. I don't think it's an understatement to say that pop culture and pop music seem to have a stronger voice than the church does. And and we could ask the question, when was the last time uh, we saw or heard of a politician or someone in government looking to the church for wisdom and guidance? Uh, When, when politicians are faced with the great problems of our day, when have we seen them go to the church as they seek to find answers? Instead, what we find, we very often find politicians looking to Hollywood actors to propagate their message. They look to Hollywood actors for advice and support. And it is true that the church bears little, if any, witness on the great social, political, and moral problems of our time. Now, I want to to underline this before we dive into, I think, what is a sad subject, I want to underline the fact that Jesus will indeed build his church. And the confession has this balance. It says, nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And so we we need to take that promise to heart. Jesus will build his church. There will always be a church in this world. But we need to have the balance that the confession does. We should be asking why the church cuts such a profile of weakness 
and silence when we know that she is called to be a light in a dark world. I think the history of the church, as it's recorded in the scriptures, begins to answer this question. In those passages we read from Lamentations and Ezekiel, we find the church at a moment in history when she was less visible and less pure. She was devoid of spiritual vitality. Her worship, her influence, her leadership had declined until all those things disappeared. And we know that they disappeared for an entire generation. For an entire generation, those things were gone because of the unfaithfulness of the church to the Lord and his word. Now, if we flip this to the positive side of things, that, that, means, that means that faithfulness to the Lord and His Word, pure heartfelt worship, that that is the key to a growing and vital church. It's the key to the church being a light in a dark world. True devotion, true worship, is what makes the bride of Christ beautiful and strong in this world. And if we long to see reformation and revival in the church, this is the truth we need to take to heart. We need to believe this. We need to practice it. Those passages, and especially the one in Lamentations, uh, look beyond the physical destruction of Jerusalem, and they really give us a view of the spiritual consequences of the unfaithfulness of the church to her king and head. We see the marks of spiritual decline in the church, and we can think of these marks as sort of a downward spiral or a series of dominoes. One happens, and then the other happens, and then the other happens. And so where does it begin? Where does spiritual decline in the church begin? Well, first it begins with the corruption of worship. The corruption of worship. You'll notice the confession underlines what the Bible teaches here, that the spiritual decline of the church and the subsequent decline of a nation, it all starts with the corruption of worship. Confession says the church will be more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances ministered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. And that's what we see happen in the ancient church. And to to do a brief flyover of biblical history, we, we need to observe the sort of the threefold judgment of God that came upon ancient Israel for their corruption of worship. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Samaria was destroyed by the Assyrians, and it is the Lord makes it clear that was a judgment on them for their corruption of worship. In 586 BC, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians. That's the the context for 
Lamentations and what we read in Ezekiel. And it resulted in a bitter captivity. We fast forward to Jesus' day, where in 70 AD, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Romans annihilated Jerusalem. And what the Lord makes clear in his word is that these judgments came because of a corruption of worship. In 2 Chronicles 33.3, we read, after, after Hezekiah had, had done so much good, he had brought about uh, revival with the, the observance of the Passover once again, we read that Manasseh, rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. The images of lewdness and whoring of spiritual prostitution that we read of in Ezekiel, how Israel had defiled themselves with the idols of the nation. That's the language of the corruption of worship. In Lamentations 1.5, it says, The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And the Hebrew word for transgressions there means rebellions. And it meant a rebellion against a known standard, the standard of God's word. If we would have kept reading in Lamentations, verse 19 says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priest and elders perished in the city. All of those have to do with the corruption of worship. You see, God has always called his people to be a holy people separated from the world by the worship of the true God according to his word. And shortly after the Lord had called his people out of Egypt, the Lord warned his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 12, 30, not to say, how do these nations serve their gods that I will do likewise? But what we see is time after time, Israel, the ancient church, looked to their neighbors and they introduced the trends of their age into worship, thinking that they could somehow revitalize their worship and, and reinvent their faith and make it more contemporary and more attractive. But here we see that the result of such misguided efforts is always the opposite of what is intended. The sad result is the true worship of the true God declining to the point of vanishing. And this temptation is alive and well. We have seen the church in our lifetime fall to these same Temptations, looking to the world for guidance in her worship. You know, we, we, read, we read from Lamentations and Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah, and we can, see, we, can, we can seem so far removed from the destruction of Jerusalem that prompted Jeremiah's lament. But 
what we see in the book of Lamentations is how the destroyed city becomes a living metaphor of a destroyed church. It ultimately envisions a people devoid of spiritual vitality, a church that had lost her purity and her visibility in the world, a people who had lost the privilege and the ability to worship the one living and true God. If you have your Bible open, look look at the uh, Lamentations 1 and let's think about some of these images. The book opens, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. The city and the roads are personified to picture a people devoid of spiritual vitality. The roads that were once filled with a multitude of worshipers singing for joy as they went to worship, those roads are now empty. The city is lonely, the roads are empty. And you contrast this with with Psalm 42. The, The psalmist is imprisoned far away from Jerusalem. What's he longing for? He's longing for being with the crowds on the roads in the city as they go up to worship. And Here the image is a lonely city with empty roads. And as I thought about this image this week, I think we could say the same of our land. I've, over the years, I've driven up to Denver to preach on many Lord's Day mornings. And almost every time I do that, I find myself surprised how quickly I can make it through Denver. And why is that? Because the city is empty. The roads mourn. If we think about it, if everyone, uh, Denver's a big city, Colorado Springs is a, a bigger city. If everyone was going to worship on Lord's Day morning, there would be much more traffic on the roads. And yet, I think it's true that our roads mourn. Our city are lonely on Lord's Day mornings. We look at church buildings. Many of them have been demolished to build other things. Some of them have been repurposed. I know there's there's one downtown that has been repurposed into a brewery. All of these are subtle signs of spiritual decline. And again, to emphasize the positive here, that the positive to the negative is that true purity and visibility begins with simple, pure, biblical, heartfelt worship of the one living and true God. Worship that's informed by his word, not by the ways of the world. It begins with a corruption of worship. But next, what is pictured is that when the church corrupts her worship, she becomes a slave to the world. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. 
No longer does the church influence the world for good, but the church influences or the world influences the church for the worse. We know that the church is to be a light, a beacon of truth, but what we read in the book of Lamentations that she has become subjugated to the wicked world. Verse 5, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captive before the foe. And so this envisions, secondly, a second mark of the spiritual decline of the church is a loss of influence and witness. It's a sad irony that the church in America has said for a generation to be relevant, to have more influence and witness in the world, we need to become more like the world. But sadly, the exact opposite has happened. We have lost our influence. We have lost our witness because we have become just like the world. Moses, again, he warned about this, or the Lord warned through Moses about this. Deuteronomy 28, 43. You corrupt your worship. You become like the world. Here's what's going to happen. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. And we read in Lamentations 1.5 that this tragedy has come to pass. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. The enemy becomes the leader. The enemy succeeds while the church languishes. And you'll notice the, the sad statement here. It talks of the children going away in captivity and I think, again, we see the same thing in our country. That the failure of one generation, a failure to, to have pure, heartfelt worship, but having the church become like the world has resulted in the next generation, not being hauled off to a foreign land in captivity, but how many of the children that grew up in the church are no longer part of the church and they are now captive to the world and captive to sin? See, the failure of one generation will inevitably cause the next to suffer. When the church's worship is corrupted, she loses her influence and her witness. And then finally, we see that she will then have a lack of leadership. Verse 4 of Lamentation 1 reads, Her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Gates were where the, the leaders and judges assembled, and now the image is that they are desolate. And any leaders that are left are, are weary, the, the priests groan. Verse 6 speaks of weak and cowardly leaders. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. 
That's the third domino to fall. The third mark of spiritual decline is that she will lack godly leaders. And again, I think this is undeniable that we see this trend in the American church. The church lacks godly leaders. And I think Scripture tells us that this this problem arises for a multitude of reasons. A, A worldly church will inevitably want to appoint worldly leaders who will not lead them into the truth, but lead them into worldliness. That's what Paul warned Timothy of. He warned them that the day will come when people will gather leaders that will tickle their itching ears. It's also true that leaders in the church can be weak and cowardly. We We can shrink away from battles and not uphold the truth. Some leaders don't want to take a stand on the truth because it will dramatically impact their membership numbers. We also see the pattern in the Bible of true prophets being persecuted. Jeremiah being a great example. He, he's known as the weeping prophet. His ministry from a worldly perspective seemed fruitless. He preached the gospel, but it was rejected again and again. And I think we still see all of these things in play. We see churches appointing leaders that will tickle their itching ears. We have leaders who are spiritually starved. You notice the imagery of how they're like deer that find no pasture. We find weak and cowardly leaders who know the truth, but won't stand for the truth. We find godly leaders who are silenced and run out of their congregations for speaking the truth. I think we, we could add here that there are leaders in the church that just can no longer bear the weariness of the rebellion of the people. Notice the image of the priests sighing. That made me think of Elijah, after that great event on Mount Carmel. And then what happens? There's there's no repentance. There's no change. And he goes under that tree and just says, Lord, just kill me. I think that tells us that, that pastor burnout is not something new, but a, a rebellious church will lead to higher levels of pastor burnout. But to end on a positive note, the church will indeed struggle until Christ comes for us. And we can be confident that there will always be a church in this world to worship Jesus. But what we see here is on the positive side, when we look we look at the Old Testament and we look at the ancient church, we, we see some great revivals happening in the church. Under Josiah, we see revival happening around the proclamation of the word of God. Remember how Josiah, he found the scroll and it was read in the hearing of the people. Uh, We find a revival under Hezekiah and that happens around the sacraments. He he has the people again observe the Passover feast and, and there was revival. 
And so while we should be concerned and we should mourn over the state of the church, we also we also can confidently rely on Christ and we can look to the means that he has given to us. You know, we can often, I think, chafe under the the simplicity of the means of grace. How's the church how's the church going to grow if we're just this small group here and we're we're listening to some average guy uh, preach for a half hour every Lord's Day, and we're we're just the Lord says, "I will bless that by my Spirit. I will grant growth, and and it is in this way that we become a light to the nations. As insignificant as we may feel at times, it will be this simple, heartfelt worship of the one living and true God." that will make us a beacon of light in a dark world. Pray. Lord, we pray that you would apply now these words to our heart. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us confidence in Jesus, our King and Head, the one who will one day present us without spot or blemish or any such thing. And we pray, Lord, that we might seek to be faithful through your word, when it comes to our worship, Lord, that we, we might resist the temptations of the world and trust that your way is indeed the best way. Lord, even as a small gathering of your people, Lord, make us a light to the world. Lord, may we influence the world for the good. Lord, may you use us in a great way for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you.